My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, Property Investory listeners. Tyrone Shum here. I want to tell you about another property podcast that I'm super excited about. It's called Think Big Property where I have millions of questions about property development and my co-host Nyong Nyon has made millions of dollars from it. I think you'll really like it. So, I wanted to play another episode for you. You can binge all the rest of the episodes on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Here it is, another episode of Think Big Property. built these five monster homes. Um, it's good for my ego but I found that it wasn't necessarily good for my back pocket um, <laughs> and then my ego got a bit of a reality check because the profit wasn't as good as it needed to be. This is the Think Big Property Podcast where Nyang earns means from property development and Tyrone, that's me, has means of questions. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the ladder of complexity and what that actually means. We travel up the ladder talking about all the different types of strategies that can be used when investing and developing property. We hear some specific examples from Nun's property developments, how to quickly add value to property and much, much more. The ladder of complexity is a smart way to organize your property investing and developing strategies in terms of their risk factor. We start this episode looking at what this is all about. When we started out doing our trainings and mentoring programs about 10 years ago, we found that there were so many different ways that people could make money through property. So we had to figure out what's an organized way to discuss property and train people in property so that they could understand risk as well as reward and as well as skill set. So, you know, doing a renovation versus doing a block of apartments versus doing a land subdivision, there are some common aspects, but there are also some very, very different aspects because building versus renovation versus civil works, there's so many different factors and consultants and costs involved. So what we did was we decided to break it up into a dozen or so different ways of making money through property, residential property more specifically, and just try to organize it. And and I say to people, this is not the truth. It's just an organized way to think about property to make it easier for people to understand one, um, where do you start, where can you start, and if you want to increase profits, increase um, your skills, increase um, your ability to make more money through property, which ways 
are more difficult relative to each other because it just gives you a, a context and, and a platform to work from because uh, oftentimes people will jump into, oh, I want to do townhouses or I want to do a structural renovation or I want to do apartments, not knowing naively that the complexities plus risks massively increase when you don't know what you're doing. So I think that that's very important to understand that. And this is why I love about talking about the, this particular topic because it's actually quite a, a sequential kind of approach to look at, okay, starting from the bottom all the way up to the top like a ladder. You know, that's the reason why it's called a ladder of complexity. What are the risks involved? So, the lower you are on the ladder, the less risk it is in, in doing that. And an example is number one, which is buy and hold all the way to the top of the ladder, which is, you know, the number 14, which is building units, townhouses and anything like three stories and 10 dwellings above, that gets quite complex. And this is where the topic today is we're going to actually unravel each and every one of these to be able to share with the audience exactly what things to be looking out for and the complexities behind it and, and potentially all the risks involved. And I think it's just a, a conversation that Young and I also have with a lot of people too. And it's really, really important to understand this because it helps us determine, okay, which level are we at at this point in time and then what things do we need to understand to move into the next stages if we want to proceed that way. So, let, let's start off with maybe the first one and um, as I mentioned, number one would be buy and hold. Let's talk about that in, in a little bit more detail. Some people might think, oh, buy and hold is pretty easy, uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, however, if you get this wrong right at the start, it can basically constrain you very much long term. You know, I've got clients who've bought buy and hold and made a lot of money. Other clients who've done it incorrectly have very much gone down the negative gearing path and it constrains them. You know, it strangles them in such that they have to go to work, they have to make those mortgage payments against their property. So, buy and hold is very much a, a cut your teeth type strategy to, to learn how to manage finances, manage multiple bank accounts if you get, when you have multiple properties, manage tenancies understand the acquisitions process of signing a contract, stamp duty, land tax, um, rental management. So, it's a really good foundational place to start and at the beginning, you know, you, you might combine a buy and hold with a, a minor cosmetic renovation to be able to not, you know, outdo yourself too much and not stretch too much uh, to be able to, to learn about finance, to learn about real estate agents, to learn about tenancies uh, as the most fundamental way um, to, to make money through property and hold wealth through property. It's interesting when you said buy and hold and, and we're talking about those level things that you just mentioned, it doesn't seem that easy at all. It's quite complex because you've got to deal with you got to deal with so many different avenues. So, even just starting getting into property, you know, to deal with a solicitor, to deal with a real estate agent, to deal with, you know, the, the bank, <laughs> to deal with property managers, there's so much involved in actually managing property just to even start off and buy and hold. And I guess this is the, the thing is once you get into property, there's so much to learn, there's so many things to do. And I guess, as you said, it's a good way to start off because as you build on top of that, there's more and more complexities that go into it. Even the foundational stuff of buy and hold, the, the fundamental question we often get with people is what entity do I buy it in? And we can do a whole podcast just in that of you know, the topic of what entity do I buy it in? And there's so many variables with that single name, joint names, company, company and trust, land tax, consideration, la, la, la. There's 10,000 permutations and combinations you can buy the property in. So, even with that, it starts triggering off, okay, do I buy it in my personal name or do I spend a grand or two setting up an entity and land tax? And So, yes, you are right. It's only three words buy and hold but at the beginning, the considerations 
are endless. And especially if you're a beginner, it can get a bit overwhelming and you don't know who to talk to next. When do I talk to the real estate agent? When do I talk to the um, solicitor? When do I talk to the accountant? Um, yeah, so it's a great way to start. And it, was, it wasn't only after until I think I bought three buy and hold properties that I understood you know, the complexity of it. It took me a couple of years for that to kind of settle before I, I bought a few more and going, okay, well, now that we're wanting to transact on them, um, as in buy and sell, then, then you start getting your head around other interactions and variables. And I like hearing from your story because you know you started off just buy and hold, eventually leading up to doing land subdivisions and so forth, which is up a little bit higher at the top of the ladder. So it's really kind of good to see that progression because everyone has to start somewhere, and the buy and hold strategy is a great way just to get started. So let's talk about the next one, which is number two, which is strata tiling. Tell us a little bit more about that and how that all works. Coming back to, to buy and hold a little bit later, I believe in, in the first you know, five or six levels of ladder complexity, you can make a lot of money, six figures, just even just on those half a dozen strategies, um, strata titling. What is that? It could be as simple as buying a duplex and creating two titles from the individual one title that you start off with and selling off the pieces. So I, I'd think of it as potentially a pizza. You're cutting up into two, cutting it into five, depending on what is already there. Uh, I know that it, a lot of people have done this in the past, in the past few decades. I remember in early 2000s, um, I was doing this in Mackay. At one stage, Gladstone had its run with strata titling as well. Um, they are getting harder and harder to find. However, they're definitely there in the rural areas where there's blocks of titles, uh, blocks of 10, blocks of 5, where you can cut them up. Um, they do need uh, firewalls that go to the roof. You need to check with a uh, certifier as well as potentially a surveyor to check that you can do this. <clears throat> but it's a really good way of adding value to a property without necessarily doing any work to it. What I mean by that is uh, after strata title, we're talking about cosmetic renovation, but strata titling, you don't even have to paint it. You don't have to add any other value other than a paper paper shuffle to be able to sell off the buildings individually. So just to clarify, it's basically looking for a, a property that has maybe um, a component where it has not been stratified. So say for example, I know someone who has, as I've interviewed in the past on my podcast who went and bought a, a unit block that had about eight units inside. But interestingly enough, it had not ever been strata titled. So there was an opportunity for him to be able to strata title that. And yes, he had to go and spend a bit of money to actually get it fire proof and like fire safe, sorry, all the way through and, and getting everything all strata titled and getting all that kind of stuff done. But, but essentially, it's just getting a block of land or block, sorry, block or something, whether it be um, units or town, or very rare actually with townhouses that would be selling as a lot. Um, but yeah, if, if a block of units or so forth where it doesn't have any strata in it, and then just basically getting a strata title which allows you to be able to sell them individually, that's where you can actually make the money from. In simple terms, strata titling is buying a property with multiple tenancies in it whereby you can sell them off like pieces of a pizza. So let's say a duplex is a good one or a triplex is a good one where you might have three townhouses together or a block of eight apartments together where you might have eight tenancies that live in separate dwellings and they'll be separated with firewalls, right? So essentially, you can strata title them off or separate the titles, create uh, multiple titles starting off with one title. So if it's a duplex, you go from one title to two and then you sell off the individual buildings or individual segments of that building uh, to individual owners. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think strata titling has a, a lot of merit in terms of adding value, um, simply because you're not spending much. You don't have to paint it. You don't have to change the kitchens. You don't have to change the bathrooms. All it is is a is a paper renovation in terms of getting a surveyor out, getting a certifier out, making sure the firewalls are right. Um, I think Tyrone, you've got an example of a, a colleague or friend who had an eight apartment block. Is that right? He basically purchased that, I think, in Bondi, and um, there's absolutely no strata tiling on that. Surprisingly, you know, for that period of time, so that opportunity was for him to actually strata tile it, and I think he purchased it for a reasonable amount of money, you know. But um, after that period of time, once he started renovating inside, keeping a few, and then selling off the few, you know, basically paid it off, and he's got positive cash flow from that property. The strata tiling is a really good entry level way to buy in bulk and, and sell retail. It's no different to buying. You know, 10 computers at a wholesale price and, and selling individually for a retail price and having that margin in there. You're not really adding any much value in terms of you're not making it any nicer necessarily. You can, you know, you can paint it and change the floor coverings and paint the roof and put fencing up. You can do that. However, it's not essential. The principle here is being able to create multiple titles and, and sell them individually because let's say a, a block of five townhouses that might be worth 500 grand each. You know, five townhouses, 2.5 million. You know, if you can get it for, let's say, 2 million or 1.8 million, you might have the resources to buy it at that point in time or, or that price point. However, mums and dads may not be able to buy it individually and afford that 1.8 million. So, therefore, you're creating a product that was not the, essentially saleable before. And, and now it is saleable and someone can buy it and own it and live in it. Um, so, it's really good too because you're dealing with multiple titles and dealing with multiple tenancies. From an education point of view, you're learning how to deal with multiple sales, multiple uh, rental managements in, in terms of the tenancies, um, rates, insurance. So it does increase the complexity from the buy and hold of just one tenancy to multiple tenancies. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into where to find strata title blocks one of the tips that you can start off with this when you go into realestate.com is look for, I think there's a box called blocks of units or blocks of apartments. How you can add value to your property in a short time frame. Cosmetic renovations, the word cosmetic means just superficial. It could just be putting on lipstick, so to speak. Why small blocks of land are becoming more popular. Your splitters are quite popular these days simply because the amount of land that's available for these are a lot smaller. So that's next. And you're listening to the Think Big Property Podcast. Hey, podcast listeners, we want to give you something extra special just for listening. When you head over to thinkbigproperty.com and subscribe, you'll receive a free chapter from Nung's book called Bankable. Inside, you'll learn about which development strategy is right for you, where you can find the best bargains, buy property at a discount and how do you get free blocks of land. Simply visit thinkbigproperty.com to get your free chapter. What are the typical ways of actually finding properties that are not strata titled and, and you know just we don't have to go into too much detail behind this but what I'm just curious about is as you said it's becoming harder and harder to find them because I think most people or most developers who are actually building blocks of townhouses usually will strata titles so they can sell them off individually. When do we actually find cases where 
there are blocks that have not been strata titled. Strata titling is, like I said, uh, hard to find, not necessarily impossible, but they're more so in more regional areas these days. Um, one of the tips that you can start off with this when you go into realestate.com is look for, I think there's a box called blocks of units or blocks of apartments. You can tick that box potentially, or even look for dwellings with more than five bedrooms. So, you know, if you've got a block of five, two bedders, that'll have, let's say, 10 bedrooms. So that'll come up. So that, that's one way you can do it. But I, I think more so regional towns, um, there, there's ways. To, to go out there and find blocks of units that way. Um, but yeah, there, there are few and far between. It's more so just being aware of it. And when you do see it, you can see that opportunity straight away. I want to probably give an example and share this with the audience. I actually have recently, about a few months ago, purchased a commercial property which actually has uh, its potential to strata and I have looked into it. I haven't actually worked out the cost and so forth but I basically bought um, a commercial property with three retail fronts at the bottom and also there's uh, two units at the top and then I'm going to build on top of that as well at the top. So, I could potentially strata title every single one of those and sell them off individually if I did decide to down the track and that's a, a good example just to show you because I purchased the whole block including the, the actual building on it and there hasn't been any strata title but there are multiple tenancies in there. So, if you look at it from that point of view, um, if you find something with multiple tenancies within a the building, there's the opportunity to be able to strata title it. The beautiful thing with that, like you're saying there, Tyrone, is it's re relevant to whether it's residential or cause, uh, sorry, commercial as well. So the principles are there. It's just uh, being open to it. So the next one that we're looking at is number three is the renovations um, and, and that could be potentially cosmetic as well. So let's talk a little bit about that. Cosmetic renovations, the word cosmetic means just superficial. It could just be putting on lipstick, so to speak. But from a practical point of view, I'll give you some examples. Um, cosmetic is something that you can do quick and generally not needing council approval. So whether it's a, a quick paint job, polishing the timber floors, uh, adding a carport, um, changing the fans, I'm installing air conditioners. I'm just looking around my house now to see what other things I could do with my house cosmetically. Replacing the carpet, uh, putting new door handles, you know, fittings, fixtures, those kind of things. A new kitchen, new bathroom. Generally, with, with cosmetic renovations, I will have a budget in mind of 20 grand. Like this will just be my generic budget and it might be five grand um, outside as in, you know, grass, mow the lawn, uh, carport in terms of a lean-to, just a bit of fencing, clean that up, um, some gravel in the garden if need be, uh, five grand on the inside. So that's like you said, carpets, uh, polished timber floors, paint on the inside. And then the other part of the 20 grand would be five grand in the kitchen and five grand in the bathroom. So those are just really rough indicative numbers because every house is different and some places you may just need to spend more and some may already have some workable kitchens and bathrooms that you don't have to spend at all. And, and sometimes you might need to get secondhand kitchens uh, to be able to meet that budget. But my point is that, yeah, cosmetic renovations designed to be quick. Some of it you can do it yourself. Um, and, and you don't need a big budget from a capital point of view um, to be able to do it. You know, 20 grand, um, if you get it right, can be a, just a good makeover. Get it on the market, back in the market in four to six weeks and sell it again. So, the, yeah, the main thing with cosmetic renovation is a quick add value. It might be a little bit tired, just a, a little bit of love, a little bit of energy and, and get it back on the market. And um, But you, the key thing is also you make your money when you buy. So this is just a, an ad value to make it saleable, li livable so that someone else can buy it and move in straight away.
Just wanted to also add as well too, if you're buying the property and you've bought it under market value but you're looking to hold it as part of the buy and hold strategy into a renovation, you can easily renovate it then put it back onto the market to rent it out as well too. You don't necessarily have to sell it so that's also an option there. So the next one we wanted to chat about is number four is splitters. I actually know this term but it's commonly used more up in the, the north north side of, of um, the east coast. So, share with us what that's all about. A splitter in terms of terminology, they're more so common in places like Queensland and even rural uh, Victoria. So, a splitter in simple terms is, is similar to, to strata titling but it's relative to land. So, what you might have is you might have let's say uh, 800 square meters and it's already on two titles and you might have a house that's sitting on those two titles. So it might be a Queenslander or a brick house that's sitting on those two titles and all you're doing is um, producing those titles or releasing those titles more than anything else. So you might have a house that, like I said, that straddles those two lots. You may have to knock down that house and then go to the Department of Natural Resources, uh, which is a, a state government body and then you pay a fee, might be a nominal fee of three to 400 bucks to release that title. So because it's already on two existing titles or multiple existing titles, all you're doing is releasing the titles so that they are usable individually. Um, so yeah, the things that you may have to do is knock down the house, release those titles, but um, to make it even more saleable, I suggest because um, the existing dwelling may only have one set of sewer, one set of uh, water, you may have to connect that second set of sewer and second set of water supply or as a service to that second block. So in, in essence, to kind of round it up and uh, summarize it again, it's a property that's on already on multiple titles that are usable, that you just release those titles for people to be able to access those lots and build on them individually. Since we're talking about splitter blocks, I'm just wondering, why would someone who owns that block of land already have two titles on it? And how did that come about initially? Sometimes uh, it, it comes for, for different reasons. Let's say in rural Victoria, I've known one of my clients to do it in, let's say, Ararat, which is a couple of hundred k's out of Melbourne there. Um, very common in rural areas because they might have you know, acres and acres and acres of land and they might have uh, pre-existing lots that they may have bought and amalgamated because if you amalgamate those titles and, and um, keep them as five lots but not individual, um, you pay less rates. Right, so yeah, in the past, what would happen is people would buy multiple lots and then they'd combine them, and um, they'd still be on two titles. Um, so one lot on two titles, uh, so they only pay one set of rates. So then they build on it because they want a big backyard, they want a big bit of dirt. However, yeah, they only want pay one set of rates. So that would have happened probably 50, 60 years ago, uh, maybe in the 50s, something like that. And it's just a remnant. Um, qualification or remnant um, decision of town planning back in the day. There's that opportunity there to be able to split it up now because I guess coming more into today's times, people are looking for more blocks to or actually opportunities to be able to get another block that's already been done because then you don't have to go through that whole subdivision process and get it approved through a council. Your splitters are quite uh, popular these days simply because the amount of land that's available for these are a lot smaller. What I mean by that is each splitter individual block could be 400 square meters versus 800 square meters and people want small blocks of land to be able to live on. They, they just want more house, less lawn to mow and budgetary wise, um, yeah, it's more affordable for people as well.
Coming up on the next episode of the Think Big Property Podcast, we'll be diving into building a new house. So building a new house, firstly, like you might be thinking, geez, you're getting someone else to do it. They've got a system. You just pay them the money. You go to work. The house is built when you come home. What are subdivisions and how they work? I think going from, let's say, number four with the splitters to a subdivision at number eight, this is where you start to learn the actual process of creating a new title. We'll hear about how Nan goes about getting funding to make a commercial play. But it's, it's just one of those things that as you get bigger, uh, you get smarter, get yourself educated and look for better ways to get funding um, that works for you without you know, putting your house on the line. And that's next time on the Think Big Property Podcast. Also, we want to give you something extra special just for listening. When you head over to thinkbigproperty.com and subscribe, you'll receive a free chapter from Nyung's book called Bankable. Inside, you'll learn about which development strategy is right for you, where you can find the best bargains, buy property at a discount and how do you get free blocks of land. Simply visit thinkbigproperty.com to get your free chapter. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone.